Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, I'm interviewing Bob Burke. I don't want to blow this out of proportion, but if you want to learn how to launch or grow a natural product through the Natural Products channel, and those include retailers like Whole Foods or grocery co-ops or grocery stores and others, then Bob is flat out the guy that you want to learn from. And the Natural Products channel continues to grow in prominence. It seems that every day we're seeing new organic gluten-free, locally produced, or sustainable products entering the market. I attended one of Bob's two-day seminars several years ago on the nuts and bolts of introducing a product into the natural product channel. And in that two days, there was not one minute of wasted time. There was zero fluff in that two days, all packed with value. I walked out of there thinking that I discovered gold. And I'm not kidding. He's the co-author of Natural Products Field Manual and the Sales Manager's Handbook, two books that are absolutely chock full of useful information. He's worked with companies such as Annie's Homegrown, Oregon Chai, Snyder's of Hanover, Kellogg's General Mills, Mighty Leaf Tea, Nature's Path, and scores of others. Finally, Bob was named one of the top 25 business builders of the natural products industry for the last 25 years by Natural Foods Merchandiser Magazine. Bob Burke, thanks for taking the time. It's an honor to have you here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Well, thanks so much, John. Really glad to be here, and um would love to talk more about what an exciting place this is. Yeah, well, it, it certainly is. So thank you so much for being here. Bob, let's start out sort of basics about your background and expertise. What are the scope of services that you offer to natural food product companies and entrepreneurs? What are your areas of expertise? You know, I usually frame it as most of what I do is around helping to bring natural, organic, and specialty products to market. So. It tends to be mostly marketing and sales oriented, but partly by virtue of being around for a while and getting pulled into a lot of different areas, I often help people in organizational development, raising capital, finding people, um, sometimes finding co-packers, co-manufacturers, connecting them up with other resources, which could be brand management companies, such as contract sales organizations, brokers, distributors, and even, you know, things like attorneys and investment bankers and so on. So it's really around uh, helping people grow, helping them identify, clarify uh, their objectives, their timeline, what resources they have, and then helping them uh, achieve them. And do any of those types of services take more of your time than others, let's say in any given six month period, what types of projects are most common for you, if any? I do a variety of things and they range from doing one-off consulting days where I might do a a sort of a sales audit or a workshop or sort of a one-day growth plan where I'll give a, a company a simple common sense info request to put me in the picture. I'll also have a fairly general two page agenda where they can line out the things that aren't relevant and timely right now or conversely highlight the uh, areas that are. We'll spend the better part of a day together and they'll leave with a pretty solid action plan, call it a six-month plan, to-do list, etc. I also uh, work on retainer where we'll talk about what the company wants to accomplish over what period of time 
and you know uh, mutually agree does that seem like a day a month two days a month more or less and so on and then for me projects are usually writing plans so it could be a go-to-market plan for a new company it could be a growth strategy for an existing company meaning they might say you know we're at 10 million we want to double over the next three years what's the blueprint to do that what's that roadmap uh, consist of, and then traditional business plans for raising capital. And I like to say that uh, I produce these plans with all the ease of passing a kidney stone. (laughs) And so they're worthwhile, they're good projects, but they're a lot of work. It's, uh, I wish I could say I had a template that I could just, uh, you know, scale or, or fill in the blanks and take somebody's uh, T plan and uh, change it around and make it for a chocolate bar. But they're all uh, strictly uh, tailored to the individual company, their stage of development, the resources they have. And it's a very specific uh, sort of narrative, step-by-step on what they need to do to grow to achieve their goals. And then it all flows into a three-year bottoms-up sales plan Uh, Bottoms up means literally itemizing by store, by SKU, by month, um, units, dollars, average price. So it, you know, builds it up in a very logical, methodical way uh, from the bottoms up. And that sales budget would flow into a P&L and flow into a cash flow. So we could understand, you know, time to break even uh, and or, you know, how much capital is going to be required to uh, execute this plan. So they're, they're very helpful. They're really a, a living, breathing management tool for the companies, but they're a lot of work. Yeah. And what types of projects are you particularly well suited for or good at? That, that's a great question. I, I would say um, the broad theme is helping people with growth strategy. And so all the various elements that go into that in terms of, you know, what I might refer to as planks in the growth platform. So taking stock of where a business is today, looking at what's available in terms of distribution growth, uh, programs that drive velocity or turns at the shelf, uh, brand building activities where you really create value in a company, opportunities for margin improvement, innovation and new products, building out the team, you know, all those things, they, they, it tends to be very, uh, very exciting, very interesting. And I always get stretched, uh, you know, personally and professionally by getting exposed to, you know, these different kinds of companies, different categories, sizes and stages and so on. Um, one of the things that's been a lot of fun for me is companies that have, you know, now achieved uh, some prominence, companies like Orgain which is an organic nutritional shake and protein powders, Mama Chia, which is a uh, chia-based beverage, now bars and granolas, um, Plum Organics, uh, who had a great exit with uh, Campbell's, and even uh, Saffron Road. These are companies that I met pre-revenue, wrote their plans, worked with them through startup and launch, connected them with uh, resources or helped with some key hires, and in many cases, uh, stayed friends and eventually joined a board or advisory board. Wow, that's terrific. I'm curious to know of those case histories that you just listed there, how many of those founders or company entrepreneurs actually had industry experience or came in from a different industry? Well, I would say the only one of those examples that had uh, experience was the founder of Saffron Road. So he's been a longtime friend of mine. His name is Adnan Durrani, and he was an early investor and board member in Stonyfield Farm, uh, the company I was with before I started my consulting business. And so we've known each other for a long time, and he's had a really interesting career where he's alternated between being an entrepreneur and investor. So he has operating experience, industry experience as well as uh, lots of experience and relationships around raising capital. The other founders were all from outside the industry and, um, you know, smart, capable people with great ideas, 
but not a lot of industry experience. Yeah. So, so to what extent do you get a leg up by having industry experience versus those that don't, do you think? Well, I, I don't want to give you a flip answer, but you know, the ones that don't have the industry experience are not weighed down by the steep challenge that they're facing. That's a good way to look at it. You know, they're sort of unencumbered by uh, facts and to some degree reality. And I mean that in, in a very nice way. Yeah. And, and so uh, it's it's refreshing. It's uh, energizing to see that enthusiasm and, uh, you know, just being rambunctious about wanting to get out there and, and grow and and see their products on the shelf and, and all of that. The people with experience, of course, do have an idea of what they're getting themselves into. And so it's not just forewarned as forearmed. It's a matter of having the right resources in place, uh, lining up uh, capital if they need that, getting the right talent. And you know clearly, uh, they can sort of leapfrog the whole learning curve, uh, whether it's relationships with brokers, distributors, or in some cases, and I'm sure you've seen this, John, people sometimes move in packs throughout their career. So you might have had a team that had a good exit, and now they've regrouped and they're on to the next company, and they have uh, trust, they have a, an existing working relationship, uh, and they might even pull in some of the brokers they've used, the branding companies they've used, recruiters, and so on, and they definitely have a leg up over somebody finding their way uh, on their own. Bob, tell us about your seminars and some of those details, maybe sort of the general agenda or outline. Sure. So I do three seminars twice a year. One is a two-day sales seminar. I do it with my friend John Majuri, who is a former A-hold or stop-and-shop category manager, has now been a broker for about 14 years. And we bring in probably about 10 or 12 experts in their field. And they could be e-com experts. Um, we have a former Whole Foods uh, grocery director on navigating Whole Foods. We bring in spins on using uh, syndicated data. We've been bringing in more cu uh, customers, such as senior people from UNFI and Ahold. And those are distributors. Uh, well, UNFI is a distributor. Ahold is a retailer. We've also brought in uh, people from the National Co-op Grocers Association. Those are uh, natural food retailers and Infra, which is the Independent Natural Food Retailer Association. And the nice thing about the seminars is we do focus on nuts and bolts content, but it also makes for really good networking with your peers as well as with the speakers who are there. Yeah, and that's for sure. I think that was one of the big unexpected takeaways that I had is these 30 people that I met at the two-day program were all maybe a year or two ahead of me. And so I could just, you know, contact them at any time and get the real practical uh, help from them from time to time. It was terrific. That's great. I'm ha so happy to hear that. Uh, on the financing seminar, we've, you know, we learned along the way that so many entrepreneurs get their heads handed to them the first time they go out and raise capital. So I teamed up with a friend of mine, Mike Bergmeier from Whipstitch Capital. He's an investment banker. And we do a full day focused on uh, deal structure, valuations, term sheets. And we have uh, a small VC. We have a bigger VC. We have an angel. We often have a strategic investor, uh, such as a larger CPG. Or recently, we had Whole Foods in. And we have a debt expert. And we also have an entrepreneur who's been through the process, who sort of tells war stories, what they would have done differently, learnings, and so on. And who attends these programs? Well, for the financing one, the majority of attendees are founders. Uh, we sometimes have CFOs, and we sometimes have what I would call executives in transition. So someone who might be looking to uh, buy into a company, start a company, uh, partner up with an entrepreneur, and so on. On the sales side, it's really all over the map. We probably have about a third of the people are founders, uh, CEOs, 
We'll have VPs of sales, national sales managers, regional managers, heads of marketing, customer service, and even sometimes uh, CFOs, because we spend a lot of time talking about trade spending. What has been the highlight of your career as a consultant? Boy, that is a hard one. Uh, it's really been gratifying. Uh, and if I were to uh, not sound too virtuous, I would say one of the biggest ongoing uh, pleasures I get are the opportunities to stretch myself in new areas. And so uh, I've been consulting now for about 20 years. Prior to that, I ran marketing and sales at Stonyfield Farm for 11 years. And I had deep knowledge in refrigerated distribution, perishable products, dairy, certainly yogurt, cultured products, etc. My first year consulting, I didn't work with a single uh, dairy product, certainly no other yogurt products, but I doubled what I knew because I was working with new categories, shelf-stable, dry grocery, people like Oregon Chai, Annie's Homegrown, etc. I learned about case stacks and end caps and shippers and all kinds of other considerations and then over the years have worked in almost every category from personal care and supplements, cleaning products, pet products, all the various categories of grocery, dairy, frozen, and even you know things like meat and seafood. So that has really stretched me. And then because I intersect with so many investors of all kinds, I got really involved in terms of what they're looking for by working as an advisor to CEOs and founders and leadership teams. Uh, financing is always a critical part of it. And even so, even though I came up through marketing and sales, here I am in my 11th year of uh, giving seminars on raising capital. And likewise, uh, have been pushed or pulled into a lot of organizational things. So um, how to put teams together, uh, what's important about bringing in key hires, how to keep that culture preserved. Yeah, and how about maybe a number one frustration or even a low light in the last 20 years? <laughs> uh, I probably work too much, you know, and I don't think I'm a relentless, uh, obsessive workaholic as much as um, part of, uh, you know, for everyone who's listening who has a home office, you know how easy it is to, you know, after dinner, uh, go do a few hours of work or go do this or go do that. So I've had uh, the nice balance of, because I've been self-employed, having a fair amount of freedom that, you know, coaching my kids in sports when they were young or bringing them on trips with me uh, when I've had the opportunities to go abroad or, or go to interesting places. But there's also a lot of nights and weekends and other things that I would say is, is quite different than um, having a, a sort of a real job. And I, I would just say one last thing, and that is, you know, because I really do get involved with those companies, uh, especially the ones I have longer relationships with, you know, I want to see them win. And I want to do everything I can uh, to get them to the finish line, to uh, get them to a great exit if that's what they're working on. But at the same time, uh, some of what I, I do is, and this is a horrible expression, but I, I do hospice, which is talking candidly and frankly to founders and saying, hey, you gave it your best shot. Uh, don't spend any more of your kid's college fund, your mortgage, your retirement fund, or whatever on chasing this dream. Uh, it's going to be too hard to connect the dots, and it's time to sort of wind it down and do something else. Very interesting. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the nature of the natural products channel. Bob, a lot of people have ideas for food and beverage products, but they're not familiar with selling through the natural foods channel. And all channels have their differences. Can you help our listeners understand the natural foods channel? Who are the players? What are their roles? And what are those players looking for? And let's just keep it brief, just sort of an overview. Sure. So if you look at any one of the uh, sort of industry directories or 
for example, Natural Food Merchandiser magazine is a leading trade publication, they'll say that the natural channels comprised of anywhere from 9,000 to 11,000 stores. And that's everything from mom and pop, you know, vitamin shops uh, to Whole Foods. And for most people entering the channel, if you think in terms of 80-20, there are about 15 or 1,600 sort of A stores. And when I am saying that in the context of sort of like ABC, and so an A store in my parlance would be a Whole Foods, a Sprouts, uh, maybe one of the uh, infra stores that I mentioned earlier. These are large independents or small chains. And this is where you would really focus your time and attention around entering the channel, building out your distribution, getting authorized here would leverage you into the larger national distributors like UNFI and CAHI, as well as some of the regional ones as well. So I'm talking uh, chains like Whole Foods, Sprouts, Earth Fair, PCC. I'm talking about smaller store groups, um, Jimbo's in San Diego that might have eight or nine stores, uh, even smaller ones where they might have two or three stores, and then high volume uh, independents. And they're usually supplied by natural food distributors. And that's how I would really think about the natural channel. Yeah. And there are brokers as well that are players in that. That's right. So brokers in other industries might be referred to as manufacturer reps. They, they are an extension of your sales team. Uh, they work on your behalf. They do headquarter sales calls. They do retail merchandising work. They work with the distributors. Um, they'll collaborate with you on go-to-market strategy and help with uh, advice around your pricing and trade programs and how to succeed. And they tend to work on either commission, uh, unless you're an early-stage company without a lot of existing business, and then they might get a retainer, which is a minimum monthly guaranteed commission. What would you say is the success rate of new products that are introduced in the natural products channel? Boy, that's a tough one. I don't have any real, you know, uh, accepted statistics on that. I mean, you, you hear all the time about, you know, high failure rates in new products in general that could be as high as a 90% failure rate. I don't think they're that high in a, in a place like the natural channel. I mean, assuming that you get so far as to get on the shelf, uh, meaning, you know, if you go through that journey that a lot of people have where they have an idea, they sort of share it with their friends, family, uh, they might do a little bit of uh, validation, a little bit of research, they might uh, get it out to places like farmers markets and so on, but by the time you hit a retailer and you've got something in a package with a UPC code, there's been a fair amount of vetting that's gone along there. And so not everybody's going to succeed, but if you've gotten that far, uh, I would say the odds are better than all the people who have ideas, put it that way. Yeah. Um, and then once you get in front of a buyer, you, you, you know, if it's a food product, uh, clearly it has to taste good, and the same with a beverage. For any kind of product, and this might sound like a motherhood virtue, you want to have something that's highly differentiated, uh, something that really has a reason to be in the market so that retail buyers, distributors, brokers, investors who are putting you through the filter of, is this really innovative? Is this going to drive growth in the category, attract a new user, result in higher margin, higher penny profit, higher ring? You're, you're sort of ticking those boxes. And so if you have something that tastes good or performs well, if it's a supplement, personal care, cleaning product, and it's highly differentiated, and you have a sustainable gross margin, then you have you know much better odds of succeeding. How often do people come to you with a product idea or product, and you don't feel confident in that product or their plans or their capability? How do you handle those situations? Uh, with candor, you know. So um, one of my MOs since I started is I'll give anyone the time of day. And so I'm happy to have a phone call, 
meet someone for lunch, see them at a trade show, hear what they're doing, offer up ideas and suggestions, perhaps make some introductions. And part of it is me uh, understanding whether I want to work with them, uh, whether I'm interested and excited about what they're doing, but also helping them understand whether they're sort of ready for prime time or whether it's back to the drawing board. So one of the most common areas that needs more work, I mean, let's say the product looks good, tastes good, all of that. Then it might be looking at the branding and the package designing, uh, whether that's looking good. And then one crux issue is whether they have a viable gross margin. And so a good rule of thumb for most food and beverage products is 40%. And when I say gross margin, I mean net sales minus cost of goods equals gross profit divided back into net sales. And so if they're in the 30s and they have a line of sight to 40 with some reasonable scale, that's fine. If they're in the 20s or teens, it really is back to the drawing board where you, they might have to think about reformulating different size, different case pack, different ingredients, or whatever it takes so that they have a fighting shot at profitability by having a viable gross margin. So again, it's being candid, it's being frank, not doing any favors, shining someone on um, where they really don't have the potential to make a go of it. Bob, in your experience, what is the top frustration of a first-time entrepreneur in this space? Well, there, there's, there's a, probably a few, right? So uh, some of the most common frustrations is just, you know, sort of breaking in, getting your first sort of beachhead accounts. Whole Foods, for example, has been uh, a fantastic customer for so many companies, but they are sometimes also the most exasperating uh, retailer to work with. You know, uh, for a long time, they've been very decentralized, where uh, it was hard for people to understand where the power really resided. Uh, the, the right answer was probably in the regions, uh, but they had people making decisions at store level, on a regional basis, and on a national basis. Uh, that's starting to move more towards more uh, national control at this point. So that was a sort of a, a source of frustration um, for a lot of early stage companies. Trying to figure out brokers and distributors can be challenging sometimes as far as who's really good. Um, and I would say the biggest pain point for a lot of early stage companies has been uh, deductions in trade spending necessary in working with distributors and retailers. And Part of the reason for that is um, filling out a new item form for most distributors is almost like filling out a tax return. Uh, and there are plenty of times when inexperienced entrepreneurs don't fully understand all the things that they're agreeing to. And so that leads to problems down the road. Or the terms are frankly kind of onerous and they don't have a lot of bargaining power. And so that's frustrating. And once they start getting into it and they start seeing these deductions come through, it really uh, takes some of the wind out of their sails in terms of cash flow and profitability. And um, it, it, is, it tends to be a big frustration area for a lot of companies to wrap their arms around. Yeah, I can see how that is. And all product entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions about their business and their business situation. In your experience, Bob, how often do you see entrepreneurs being wrong about those initial assumptions and then needing to pivot their product in one way or another in order to survive? For example, maybe they need to change the product features or the stated benefits, the target audience positioning approaches, those types of things. That, that's a great question, and uh, it's certainly a hallmark of uh, companies who end up, you know, growing and succeeding and going the distance is that ability to quickly recognize when things aren't working and make whatever adjustments and modifications they need to. You know, there was a beverage company uh, that I wasn't involved with directly, 
but I have uh, some close friends who were working as both contract sales and helping out as sort of a part-time CFO. So I had a little bit of insight, and it was a beverage company that was the it, it thing that year. Um, I was doing a presentation at an expo, Natural Product Expo, where I reached out to Whole Foods buyers and UNFI buyers and brokers saying, you know, what are the hot trends, what's emerging, what's exciting, and they all cited this beverage company. And I would go by the booth, and people are thronging the booth. They're four deep, five deep, climbing each o- over each other's backs to get samples of this product. Everybody's excited about it. And talking to the people who were doing sales, they were like, Bob, you wouldn't believe it. I've been in this industry 25 years. I'm batting a 1,000. Everybody loves it. We're getting distribution as fast as we can. We can't keep up you know, I'm going to retire on this company. You know, they, they gave me 1% equity, 2% equity, whatever. Well, flash forward six months, nine months, they're in 5,000 stores, 6,000 stores, and the stuff isn't selling. Yeah. You know, and then you have to go through the painful, you know, uh, deep dive of, is it the size? Is it the price point? Is it the flavors? Uh, is it the packaging? Um, is it the taste? Is it this? Is it that? And they concluded that uh, the product tastes good, but it was too sweet and the calories were too high. So instead of being 16 ounce, it should be 12 ounce. Um, instead of 399, it should be 299. Uh, we're going to need to reformulate. We're going to need to do this. We're going to need to do that. Well unwinding all that when you're in five or six thousand stores pretty much put them out of business yeah um another example is i mentioned um plum organic now that's an example where the founder had this notion of doing frozen organic baby food and so you know this was a a well-meaning and i mean that sincerely mom who would you know get out the cuisinart or get out the blender and you know make her own baby food put it in ice cube trays or other containers and you know go through all that effort well that lasts about a week or two weeks for most people and so she's like there's got to be a better way so she engaged a product development firm uh, to come up with basically frozen organic baby food and great idea everybody we showed it to loved the concept we engaged a leading market research firm who did formal, quantitative, sophisticated market research. The results were off the charts. Whole Foods loved it. UNFI loved it. We had a national broker who loved it. Well, again, getting consumers to go to the freezer to pay a premium for organic frozen baby food was the first challenge. Then on an everyday basis, it's like planning ahead to thaw it out, you don't want to put it in the microwave, you don't want to scald the baby, you know, on and on and on. So once it was on the in the market, we found there were a lot of challenges that weren't quite anticipated. And so, you know, one thing led to another to where Plum became one of the first companies to put baby food in pouches. And then it was off to the races. And not only uh, did they have a fantastic exit uh, with Campbell's, Campbell's Soup Company, but they, you know, diversified their offerings. They sort of aged up where they came out with products for toddlers and, and kids and, and so on, and it was a great outcome. But had they stuck with the original concept of frozen organic baby food in the freezer, they would have been one of those casualties that went out of business a long time ago. Fascinating. Do you see any product category or business growth opportunities within this channel that are emerging, sort of the next thing? Yeah, well, there are quite a few, and I don't know how many of these uh, haven't been seen yet, but you know, I would say some of the ongoing trends that I'm still seeing a lot of activity in is, you know, one is a move towards uh, less sugar, no sugar, so not exactly uh, a unique observation, but uh, 
sugar has sort of been vilified along with trans fats and, and other ingredients like that. So things like sparkling waters, cold brewed coffees, yogurts that only have the, uh, the sweetness coming from the fruit they add, no added sugar. There's a lot of activity there. Grain-free products are a really interesting area. So part of that appeals to people who believe that uh, wheat and grain have uh, deleterious effects uh, on the body, uh, not just you know for people who are gluten intolerant, but also uh, may have some uh, implications around things like dementia and inflammation uh, in the body and so on. Grain-free also appeals to people who look for paleo products. So you're seeing uh, grain-free baked goods such as uh, No Foods, K-N-O-W, or mixes like Simple Mills uh, and others. So that's an interesting area. The whole area of gut health is interesting, not just probiotics and dairy, but sort of uh, lacto-fermented products like uh, sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, apple cider vinegar shots that are flavored and so on. So these are all fertile areas where you're seeing lots of innovation. Are there any natural product entrepreneurs that have inspired you more than others or that you've been most impressed with? Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's almost like too many to count. Yeah. And the uh, reason I ask is because we're, we've got some listeners here that are considering getting into a business like this from time to time. And I'm curious to know if, if they, there can be some, if they were to Google a couple of names, they'd find some interesting case histories. You know, um, one, one of the guys I worked with for a long time uh, at Stonyfield and I've uh, stayed friends with and, um, you know, really privileged uh, to say that he's someone I know, like, admire, and we're friends is uh, Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield. Um, so I can't tell you how many near-death experiences Stonyfield had before we sort of uh, reached solid ground and grew, and so much of that was through his determination and uh, not quitting when it would have been, you know, easy to do so for other people. Um, having a talent to not only uh, lead people, inspire people, but all the practical things around raising money, building plants, building teams, and you know, now that Stonyfield is, I don't know what they are now, uh, over 400 million. And they've been part of uh, Danone, Group Danone, uh, Danon in the U.S. Gary is uh, still chairman, and he's gone on to help so many other people, both as a board member, mentor, advisor, investor, uh, etc. Uh, people like Honest Tea, people like Orgain, and others. That he's really had a, a much broader impact beyond whatever whatever influence uh, Stonyfield had. You know, another one is uh, Janie Hoffman from Mama Chia, and she's the epitome of someone who will not be denied, hmm. you know, through sheer force of will, uh, will just knock down walls, not take no for an answer, and sort of do what it takes to raise money, come up with the best product, put teams in the field, get authorizations, get distribution, and just, you know, push, push, push to uh, make things happen against steep odds. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about product development. How often do you help with product ideation, maybe from the early stage? Or how often do you are you involved in the development of product for entrepreneurs? Uh, well, uh, quite often, uh, but I really need to uh, specify that my involvement is either more at a strategic level, from a marketing level, innovation level, ideation, you know, in getting, you know, pretty specific and granular about, you know, what size, features and benefits, flavors, what price points we're looking to hit. Is there a real business case for this? And that's very different from all the people who do really commercializing products around formulation, sourcing raw materials, and things like that. So. I collaborate with people who do that, 
but it's a whole separate expertise than from what I have. In, in your exposure to those types of people and those skills, what do you think is the best process for product development to make sure that the product is successful? Well, I think certainly with the founder entrepreneur having as clear an idea of what they're looking for. So if it's something they're, let's say a food product or a beverage product that they've made up in their own kitchen or equivalent, so that when they go to a food science person, a formulation person, or a firm, and there's quite a number of good ones out there, that they have, they can give them very clear direction. You know, so what are they looking for in terms of taste profile, ingredients, qualities such as whether it's organic or non-GMO or using fair trade ingredients, whether it's looking to have certain nutritional benefits. You know, in the case of uh, Mama Chia, where it was a chia-based beverage, Janie might have said, you know, I want every bottle to be at least 1,000 milligrams of omega-3s or have so many, um, you know, antioxidants or it has to be organic. Or once you go through that process and you're involved in doing some reality checking, you might say, well, it can be organic, but it might be the $7.99 bottle of Chia beverage. And so maybe we have to back off a little and make it verified non-GMO. Or I might, want it to, I might have wanted to use fair trade organic cocoa powder for something, but non-GMO is good enough or something else once you start to get in the thick of it. But having a clear vision and a clear idea of the outcome you're looking to get to uh, for a product is, is really important. And if you have an example of what you've made yourself, like this is it. This is what I want you to match and scale from sort of benchtop to production uh, quantities is, is very important. Let's take it one step further and talk about production and manufacturing. In your experience, Bob, how often do new entrepreneurs manufacture their own product for the first year or two, let's say, versus finding a third party to do the production for them? That, that's a great question, John. Um, what I would say is more and more companies are finding outside co-manufacturers or co-packers or bottlers to make their products for a, for a number of good reasons. And the ones who make it themselves are usually doing something very, very unique or proprietary. For example, uh, over the years I've done work with Hail Mary, which is a raw, vegan, gluten-free product where there just isn't a lot of capacity out there among co-manufacturers. Or I was on the phone earlier today with someone who's really focused on doing allergen-free cookies. So finding a plant who's soy-free, dairy-free, nut-free, uh, egg-free, on and on and on, is a real challenge. So someone like that might either have uh, very few prospects or they say, you know what, we're just going to do it ourselves. But for most companies, there's so much capacity out there with co-manufacturers. Investors generally want to see their money going into things that grow value in the company. So brand building, innovation, uh, building out distribution. I've had investors say to entrepreneurs very flatly, we don't want our money going into stainless steel. Likewise, you don't get that value often at exit. So if you're looking to position your company uh, for exit to a large CPG, most of the time they're not, they don't really need your plant unless, again, you're doing something so proprietary and different that they're not already doing it within their network. But probably the most important aspect of using co-packers or co-manufacturers or not is as a founder, you really want your time and attention going into the highest return activities, which again, tend to be building out distribution, focusing on new products, focusing on brand building activities, and not running a plant. Terrific. If the production is outsourced to another production partner, 
What are some of the most common problems or issues to be aware of for new entrepreneurs and how can they prepare that things go as smoothly as possible? Yeah, that's another great question. I would say, you know, one way to think about it is almost like an analogy of when you're raising capital, so many people are focused on valuation. And what often is even more important is the term sheet. And likewise, when people are looking at co-packers, it's like, of course, they want people who can make what they're looking to make, but then they're really focused on price, when in fact, uh, elements of the term sheet with a co-packer or co-manufacturer might be things like uh, lead times, minimum order quantities, um, payment terms, uh, whether existing customers are picking up there at their plant or they have to get it out of there within 48 hours. There's a lot of variables beyond who's the lowest price. And often what I'll suggest to early stage companies is, you know, err on the side of flexibility. If you can find a co-packer, co-manufacturer who is flexible around minimum order quantities and lead times, can work with you on refining the recipe. Um, and also another thing is someone who's frankly physically close to you, someone who's a drive away versus being a plane ride away. All those things tend to be better. And you know, very importantly, you need to own the recipe. So in a beautiful world, you have transparency in terms of their costing and what they call their tolling. The toll charge is their sort of labor overhead profit. Uh, they're being open with you on how they're coming up with their numbers. And if they do any refining of the recipe, you own that recipe. And they don't have you over a barrel where there's such a difference between what you came to them with and what you've ended up with that if you want to leave them, uh, you're not restricted. Great advice. Let's talk about pricing a little bit. What's the best approach to pricing a new product? What factors need to be considered? Well, interestingly, sort of pricing is almost like this Rubik's Cube of a lot of different variables, and it's very, very important. So to begin with, your pricing should reflect your positioning in the category. You know, are you premium? Are you at parity? Are you value priced? So you, you really want to think about that. Secondly, you want to think about who do you view as your most direct competition? Because the reality is that's how the trade and consumers are going to view you. And so where are they priced? Where are they priced on promotion? You know, can you hit that? Having said that, I would never be shy about getting a premium price if you've got, uh, you know, the benefits and, and the, the quality to support that premium price. And then another factor is, you know, will your pricing give you that viable, sustainable gross margin you need to ultimately have a profitable business? And so you're really balancing does this reflect my positioning in the category? Does it lend itself to everyday velocity off the shelf? You know, selling through a, on a brisk uh, level on an everyday basis? Um, is it sort of consistent with the people I view as my most direct uh, competitors? And does it give me an opportunity to have a rewarding and uh, fulfilling gross margin? How often do entrepreneurs find that their initial pricing strategy was right the first time? Or do you see a lot of pricing adjustments? In the categories that I observe, not necessarily in this channel, entrepreneurs get the pricing wrong a lot. <laughs> well, I've certainly seen that happen a lot. Um, I mean, my advice, which is just, um, you know, a little bit simplistic and, and hopefully common sense, is, you know, piloting it in an area. So if you're an early stage company in your backyard, in a dozen or two dozen stores, try to validate those key assumptions you have going in where you can see evidence that it's selling through and selling off the shelf. And so if you're thinking it should be $299 or 399 
or somewhere in between, you know, get it out there and see evidence that it's selling through so that you don't find yourself in a thousand targets and it's dead in the water and not turning. So that's one thing. The other thing is so many people think the sky will fall if they take a price increase and nothing could be further from the truth. And so if you go out with a certain price point and you're not getting your gross margin or more realistically, your costs increase, you know, so depending on what commodities you need, if they're dairy, if they're eggs, if they're certain nuts, whatever they are, you know, every category from time to time will have some scarcity or something else where you have unexpected cost increases and you just can't eat it. And so having that sort of fortitude to take a price increase when you need to, so you keep your margins in that area where you can have a viable business is, is very important. Let's shift gears just a little bit. Let's say I'm a new entrepreneur and I've got a product that seems promising. I've got my packaging in place. I've got my product and perhaps production lined up to a degree where I can do a test and maybe five to 30 co-op grocery stores around a particular market area. What's the best way to prepare for approaching a distributor and retailers? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I've seen people do it in almost any order, meaning broker, distributor, retailer, in any sequence. But probably the best way or, or the highest odds for success are getting a broker first, getting that broker's input and feedback on refining your go-to-market strategy. The broker often has access to the retailers, so they're in there every week. Uh, you might be able to tag along. They might be able to you know, set up a special meeting for you. Or it might be that they're in for somebody else and they pull your product out of the bag and say, we're working with this exciting new company. Here's a sample. I'd love to get the founder in. Uh, however that works. But then when you do get in front of the retailer and the retailer likes it and wants it, they'll often say, how do they want to buy it? Meaning, do they want to bring it in direct into their own DC if they have one? Or we're working with this primary distributor or the secondary distributor, and this is who we'd like to bring it in from. If you just show up at a distributor, um, they'll very likely be nice to you, and they'll say, that's great, come back and see us when you have some more customers because they want to know there's a home for it if they bring it into their warehouse and somebody's pulling it through their system. And so distributors will often want to see that you've got some authorizations in their key customers. Uh, if it's someone like a UNFI, they may want to see regions of Whole Foods or a customer like a Wegmans or a preponderance of independence you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever the case may be. They're going to want to see that you'll support their marketing programs, their advertising and promotion programs, and they'll want to see that you have a sales effort in the field. So brokers and or your own sales team. Well, let's talk about promotions and marketing a little bit. One of the things that was really unexpected to me when I attended your two-day seminar about 10 years ago was the amount of time and effort went into not just the consumer marketing aspect, but also the marketing support and promotions necessary to support the distributor and the retailer. Can you give us maybe a two-minute sort of thought on, on how to best prepare for that and what the components are in both working with distributors and retailers? I would sum up uh, trade spending, that is the monies you spend with retailers and distributors, as it being very important to think of these as intentional, deliberate, purposeful investments. And 98% of the people out there think of them as the cost of doing business. And so what objective do I have for running this promotion through a distributor or retailer? Is it to get trial on a new product? If it's an off-invoice promotion through a distributor, is it to get into more stores? 
Is it to build volume during a seasonal peak period? Or conversely, uh, something counter-seasonal? Uh, if it's normally like Oregon chai was normally consumed hot, do I want to run a iced chai promotion in the summer and build up some business in my off-season? So really thinking about why am I doing it? What objectives do I have? How will I measure those results? And then do I want to do more of this or less of this once I understand their impact? And hardly anyone does that. A lot of times it's my distributor said I want, they want me to do 15% off four times a year. So what I'm trying to get at a related question would be, let's say I'm a new semi-promising product and I've got everything lined up and I'm approaching a distributor and retailer and there's early interest from them, how expensive, what sort of budget in terms of a pile of money do I need to do a small entry into those retailers and distributors? Yeah, so I think uh, this is again a situation where uh, forewarned is forearmed and both uh, your broker preparing you as well as having a um, you know detailed, candid conversation with the distributor to understand their expectations and their requirements, you can kind of do this as a bottoms up. And and I'll and I'll answer the question. I'll try to be concise and, and give two perspectives. So one is a rule of thumb on trade spending is it usually comes out on average around 15% of sales. Now, for earlier stage companies acquiring a lot of new distribution, doing introductory deals, free fills, slotting, it could be 20, 25% of sales. And so if you have a plan and you're looking to do 300,000, 500,000, 800,000, whatever it is for your first year, and your trade spending is coming in, let's say at 20% of sales, you're probably in the ballpark. So that's one way to look at it. And then the other is simply itemizing what the expected expenses are. So if you're going to do what you suggested, John, do a pilot in a region where you're going into, say, 30 stores or 40 stores or something like that, you might say, well, I'm going to demo each store twice. It's going to cost me 100 bucks a demo. So what is that going to cost? If it's a Whole Foods, they might require a free fill which means a case per store per SKU billed back to you at wholesale price. So what does that add up to be? If you're launching through a UNFI or a KEHI or even a small regional distributor, they may want you to advertise in their catalog. What are those costs? So it's as easy as just making a list of what those expected fixed costs will be as well as some of the variable costs such as, you know, after being uh, on the shelf for eight weeks, we're going to run a 15% off promotion so that instead of $2.99, uh, we're going to be two for five bucks or $2.49 or something like that as a way of getting trial and getting people to try the new product or, or buy a bunch of them. Excellent. Super helpful. Finally, Bob, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? Uh, I'm brimming with advice, John. So, <laughs> so there, I'd say there's two things that are sort of interrelated that I think are good guiding principles, right? So, you know, invoking Stephen Covey, it's beginning with the end in mind. So I, I think I've said a few times throughout our discussion, you know, what outcome are you looking to shape? And so if you're looking to grow and sell a, your business to a large CPG, that's different than I love what I do, I wanna do this over the next 20 years. And so that ongoing tension or pressure between running a business to, that maximizes growth versus one that maximizes profitability and cash flow is something to really have clarity on. And then secondly, related to that, when you work with outside people, so whether it is brokers, 
contract salespeople, branding agencies, consultants like myself, talking about what are your objectives, how do you define success, and making sure that both parties are on the same page around expectations is a real good foundation to have in successful relationships. And the reason why most of these don't work out, work out, including with investors, is when there's a mismatch on expectations. And so that is something to really be mindful of as you uh, move forward. Bob Burke, it's been a real joy. You've been a fantastic guest, offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success in this industry, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, thank you, John, for having me. So glad to be here, and uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.